Good morning, ABC. My name is Kelsey Iverson, and I'm the Student Ministries Coordinator here at church, and I just wanted to give you some announcements today before we hear a message from Jake. First off is our annual youth conference called Awaken. It's coming up on November 12th and 13th. And one thing that we are in need of is cookie donations. So if you're able to provide cookies without peanuts, please, we would love for you to bring them down to the church the week leading up to Awaken. Next up, it's that time of year again where we are looking for families that we can bless through the Caring Angel Tree. So if you know of a family in need of some extra help with gifts this year, please contact Jan Johnson at the number below and let her know what families you think that we can bless. Today is actually the last day for you to give names, so please make sure that you call her today. And lastly, we're bringing back Sunday lunch next week on November 7th. It's going to be after the 9 o'clock and 1045 services, and it costs $5. We'd love to have you join us. And with that, that's all I have for you. So thank you so much for joining us, and have an awesome Sunday. Well, thanks for tuning in today, church. Uh, we are one week away from wrapping up the book of Titus. Gerald's going to land the plane on that next week. Um, today, we're in Titus 3, 9 through 11. So grab a Bible. Uh, if you have one near you, grab your phone, whatever you need. Follow along. Titus 3, 9 through 11. The text today is all about foolish controversies, quarrels, useless fighting, um, so on and so forth. So just pretend that that's a relevant topic for us today in our lives, in our world. Just pretend. I know it's probably nothing uh, you ever have to deal with, but just pretend you can relate to that. Foolish controversies, quarrels, useless fighting as we get to Titus 3. I heard this story recently of two brothers in southern Germany around the time of the Second World War. They were named Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. They called themselves Addie and Rudy, two brothers. They were both cobblers. Uh, they made shoes, and they together ran the Dassler Brothers Sports Shoe Company. The story goes that during an Allied bombing, Rudy and his wife were already sitting in a shelter, like in a bunker when Addie and his wife then climbed down into the same shelter. And the legend goes that Addie then said, the dirty blanks are back again. I won't say the word he said, but the dirty fill in the blanks are back again. It was unclear whether Addie was referring to the allied warplanes that were coming to bomb them or to Rudy and his wife. But apparently Rudy interpreted it to be about he and his wife. And then it triggered this decades-long feud between the two brothers and their families. They ended up breaking up their shoe company and starting two competing shoe companies uh, in the same town. And that could have and should have been the end of it. But then the division between the family infected the mindset of everybody in town. So everybody on one side of the river um, that ran through the town, they were loyal customers of Addie's shoe company. And the other half was loyal customers to Rudy. It actually became known as the town, the town of Bent Necks. Um, because people would be known to walk around looking down at each other's feet to see exactly where their loyalties lied, whose shoe company they bought their shoes from. And if you saw someone wearing the shoes of the other shoe company, you wouldn't date that person, you wouldn't go into their stores, marriage was discouraged from that person. The feud went all the way to the grave. In fact, the brothers are buried at opposite ends of the town cemetery. Maybe a small random story, um, but Addie's shoe company became what we know as a little shoe company called Adidas, and Rudy's shoe company became uh, Puma. 
Isn't that funny? Like a community divided over shoes that became two of the most popular shoe companies in the world. But it started out of the most useless controversy ever. Isn't that crazy? But we're all prone to it. We're all prone to useless controversy to fighting and to quarrels. If you think about your own life, you'll realize, man, the, the time I spend on arguments that just don't matter, we're all prone to it. And here's where we get to Titus 3, 9 through 11. Here's what Paul writes. But avoid foolish controversy, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I love that line. They're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We'll talk about that phrase in a bit too. He is self-condemned. So it's helpful to remind us some context before we dive into it. Paul was likely still addressing a very specific group of problematic people for the church in Crete. It was the corrupt Jewish leaders over that church. They stood in stark contrast to the gospel-centered culture that Titus was aiming to create. It's like everything that Paul encouraged Titus to in chapter 2 and even in chapter 1, how Titus was to lead and how he was to teach, this was the opposite. So Titus, avoid this. It's like Paul saying, I've shown you how to lead in a way that brings value, in a way that's worth something. But these things, they are worthless. They are unprofitable. Avoid them at all costs. In these couple sentences, he just gives us a little window into what kind of culture had been created under these corrupt Jewish leaders who were more power-hungry than they were pastoral. Specifically, what did that look like? So he starts by saying foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies. There's good reason to believe that Paul was referring to the Jewish leader's insistence on adhering to Old Covenant tradition. Specifically, you've got to get circumcised. Like that was a thing they kept on pushing on these New Covenant believers. And then the arguments that followed. Those were controversies based out of foolishness. And they were themselves foolish. Saying that for Titus to even try to have that argument with these corrupt leaders who had no intention of submitting to God's authority or embracing the liberty and the freedom found in Christ, for Titus to try to even have that conversation, that's worthless. It's useless. It's not going anywhere. Titus, it's a waste of your time. Don't engage. But in addition to Old Covenant requirements, Paul was also likely referring to a number of secondary theological issues, which goes to say whether it was between, between Titus and those leaders or between uh, any church member with another church member, there are certain issues that when debated well and in the context of two parties who submit to God's authority and to the truth of his word, that will, that can be a valuable interaction. That can be a sharpening conversation that's worth having. But that's not what was happening here, okay? That's not at all what was happening here in Crete and more on that in a minute. Third thing he says is avoid genealogies. This is interesting because it's not uh, a word we think about much. He says, don't waste time with genealogies. It shows a couple things. Not at all saying that the genealogy passages in the Bible are worthless, um, but there were Jews who had been wasting countless hours and causing useless distraction with metaphorical and allegorical interpretations of the genealogy scriptures. It's like they were trying to find some kind of personal and even poetic significance in them that just wasn't there. 
And not only that, but there were some who, in a more personal way, they were really trying to presume on their own background, as they saw it in the genealogies, to sort of try to posture themselves and prop themselves up based on their family status, really as an attempt for justification or significance. The problem here was they did that rather than putting complete faith in Christ, rather than finding complete significance and justification and worth in Christ. They were trying to borrow that from their family history or their family line, which all of this sounds pretty foreign to us, but at the same time, we all know someone recently who spit into a cup and mailed it into 23andMe or whatever it is, and they found out that they're not actually as Irish as they thought they were, and they just have like normal anger problems, not just Irish anger problems, so they're just like all of us. I mean, right, there's like this natural fascination with our heritage and our lineage to know who we're connected to and where we came from, and that's not bad at all. That is good and fine. But these people, they were totally obsessed over it. They lost themselves to it. And for shameful gain, that's the problem. It was for shameful gain. It was to prop themselves up based on something less than Christ. So Paul just urges Titus, hey, don't bother with it. Don't bother. It's not worth your attention. It's not worth your time. Then he lists a couple phrases that really summarize it all. He says dissensions and quarrels. Some translations use the word strife or quarrels about the law. See, so under the wayward influence, the corrupt influence of their leaders, many of these new Christians were still trying to borrow holiness from the law. And that led to all kinds of arguments over technicalities and specifics about what meant what and why and who it applied to. Now, these words aren't even as neutral as the word controversy, even in English. I mean, you could argue that you could do controversy well, at least disagreement and debate. But to quarrel, that has clear connotations of fighting and striving. This was outright negative. There is no good quarreling. There's no good dissension. It's only bad. This is just you trying to destroy your brother's shoe company from across the river. There's, there's no redemption there. It's only bad. Titus, avoid this at all costs. Avoid dissension. Avoid quarreling over the law. And then... Here's uh, where it just it, it feels um, piercingly interesting to me. Not only is he saying to avoid the behavior, Paul goes even further, even uncomfortably far, and he says, have nothing to do with that person. That person who stirs up division. Have nothing to do with that person. Cut all ties. And then he labels people guilty of such behavior as they're at the end of verse 11. He says, they are warped and self-condemned. Wow, right? Why is this person self-condemned? It's interesting that Paul doesn't say that God condemns this person, but they are self-condemned. I think that's because they're attempting to find justification and holiness and identity in whatever things they're arguing for, be it a secondary theological issue, a point of family pride, adherence to the law, maybe for the leaders, this control mechanism of enforcing old covenant law on new covenant people. See, we're all hungry for significance and purpose, and so were they. They just thought that they had found it in adherence to the Jewish law, which had become their way of controlling God and controlling people. And not only is that foolish, but it actually robbed them. It, it self-condemned them. It robs a person of their only true hope and justification, which is only found in surrender to Christ. Like this negative, wicked, self-fulfilling prophecy 
that they would rob themselves of the opportunity to find their only hope in Christ. Here's the point. You can argue about your righteousness and pedigree, or you can boast in Christ, but you can't do both. One leads to life and peace, and the other leaves you self-condemned. That's what we see there. The other leaves you self-condemned. Now, let's back up to that first phrase, foolish controversies. I want to focus on what that could mean for us and really how to discern between disagreements that could lead to sharper faith and good conversation and then disagreements that lead to foolish, worthless, waste-of-time controversies. Brian Chappelle noted it really well. He said that we struggle with these commands to avoid dissensions because we know there are things worth disputing. And because it seems divisive to separate from divisive people. I love that line. But then he continues, and he draws a super helpful distinction for me. He says, there is a difference between needing to divide and loving to divide. The way Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 11 is, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If you are inclined to fight inclined for debate, for division. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But Chappelle is right because there are things worth disputing, and we all know that. But the question is where to draw the line on those things. Because there's multiple times throughout the Gospels and the New Testament where it says, separate from such and such a person, or have nothing to do with such and such a person. The Bible gives examples all over the place of when an issue is so important that we might need to divide over it. There might be an issue that is so central to the gospel message, to the central message message of salvation, that if you believe something different than me, then that's irreconcilable. That is, that is fundamentally at odds in an irreparable way. And it would be better for us to agree to disagree and just part ways. That would be better for everybody. But all I'm saying with this passage in mind is that that list of issues is very, very short. Or at least it should be. That list of issues, the things that demand division and separation, that list of issues is very, very short. Those things are what we would refer to as primary theological issues. They're issues that are so part and parcel with the central message of salvation that they are worth dividing over. The reason they're worth dividing over is because that's what most unites us. See, so the thing where we find our our core unity, if we're different on that, the default is division then. So it just begs the question, how do we decide what those issues are? Because there are obviously going to be varying degrees of, um, of weight that people give to such and such an issue. How do we decide what's a primary issue and what's a secondary issue? And I just want to say, just from our church's perspective, and this isn't everybody, but from, from ABC's perspective, we, we believe and we strive to submit to the, the emphasis of the New Testament, to the overall thrust as we, as we see it. And we see that being the salvation of souls, finding new life in Christ. And we try to submit to the early church fathers who met in councils and developed creeds that spell out exactly what is most important. And ultimately, we believe that that is salvation. It seems like every time the early church fathers would would see um, complication or convolution happening in the, the Christian story, it's like they would get together for the purpose of clarifying things in order to find unity. 
They would try to clarify things to, to preserve unity. And it seems like every time what they would do is they would just simplify it. They'd be like, no, 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 you're adding too much to it. No, that's too much of an, that's, that's too convoluting of an issue. Let's strip it away. Let's get down to the basic, to the root, the fundamental. And it seems like that has always been salvation. Answering this question, what must a person do to be saved? That's it. What must a person do to be saved? How does this relationship work between humans and God? What is the purpose of humanity in God's big, great story? And how is a person to be saved? See, that is worth dividing over because that's what unites us the most. So that's going to be the thing that's most different about the Christian from whoever else. In other words, I'm just saying, let's not divide over blank issue if blank issue is not the thing that unites us most. Be that a theological issue, a cultural issue, a current issue. I just want to encourage us, church, let's not divide over whatever it is. Fill in the blank with theology. Fill, fill in an age of the earth. I don't know. Exact end times, eschatology theory. I, I don't know. Let's not divide over that because when Paul said, if it weren't for the resurrection, then our faith would be in vain. He didn't say, if the age of the earth is not agreed upon by every Christian ever exists, then our faith is in vain. He didn't say that. He said, if the resurrection from the dead didn't happen and isn't possible, then our faith would be in vain. Let's not divide over uh, thoughts on whatever the current issue is. You think this about vaccine. They think this about vaccine. You think this about mask policy. They think this. I, let's, can we not divide over that? Because that's not the, because our consensus over that thing is not the thing that unites us in the first place. I just believe when our unity is as Jesus hoped it would be, the ideas that could divide us don't stand a chance because we are so deeply unified on the main thing. And that's that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That we and anyone who would come to him can find new life in him from that. That's the main thing. But here's what I'm not saying, okay? What I'm not saying is that nothing else is worth debate or disagreement or refinement. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. There are a ton of significant issues in our faith that the church would call secondary or even cultural issues like I just mentioned. There are a ton of secondary issues, but they still have huge consequences and they're worth conversation. They're worth disputing. And that's really what I want to spend the rest of the time on today. To ask the question, is there a way to navigate disagreement? It's usually prone to foolish controversy. Like that's usually where it goes. Is there a way to navigate that, but with wisdom, with both theology, with faith, but just in general, okay? Think you, think your marriage, the controversy there, you and your kids, you and your friends. What would it look like for us to have fewer and better fights? So that's my hope for us, is that we as a church would lead the way in having fewer but better fights. So drawing from the heart of the passage, I think it's helpful to think through some filters, navigating controversy with wisdom. And this is here on your notes. Number one, consider the issue. Number one, consider the issue, be it theological, be it whatever it is. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. I just want you to ask yourself, is this issue worth the argument? Is this argument worth having? 
Will this issue likely lead to a constructive conversation that sharpens my faith? Ask yourself questions like this, whatever the issue is, how badly do I need this to be true? Maybe your preference on the thing, what you believe to be true about the thing. How badly do I need this to be true? How badly do I need to be right about this thing? And what would it mean for me? What would it mean for my life in an actual meaningful way for me to be wrong about this thing? Like what, what consequence would that have? And then inverse, what would it mean to find consensus on this issue? Would finding consensus on this actually move the needle forward in any meaningful way for me, for my life, for our life together? My wife and I load the dishwasher differently than each other. Um, I think I do it better, and I think she thinks that she does it better. She does laundry significantly better than me. I just, I'm a mess at laundry, but I think I load the dishwasher really well. We do it really different, but I ask, what would consensus look like on this issue? And it's just not that consequential, okay? It, it just doesn't make a huge difference. So we rarely talk about it. We, it's rarely an issue that either of us presses, but think that on a, on a greater scale, what would it mean to find consensus on this issue? And is it necessary? So one is consider the issue. Is it an argument worth having? Number two, consider the people. Think about the people that you're going to engage in the conversation with, or the argument, or the debate. If there are things worth debating, things worth disputing, if you've said, yes, this argument is worth having, to consider the people. Proverbs 20, 12 says, the hearing eye, or sorry, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. From the time of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus to the Cretans who right now are demanding circumcision for the church, there are many people, and even now in your life, there are many people who have no intention of submitting to the authority of God. And issues of truth will only go so far with them. And if I try to debate very much with them, they're not the fools in that situation. I'm the fool in that situation. Even among other Christians, there's a level of discernment to be had with their maturity and their receptivity. That should lead us to think and ask the question, if I discuss this issue with these people, will that likely lead to a constructive conversation that sharpens their faith? Not only sharpens my faith, but if I talk about this issue, this debate, if I engage in it with them, will it likely lead to sharper faith for them as well? Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 10, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. One is consider the issue, two, consider the people. Number three is this, consider the space. If you say, okay, this, this argument is worth having. There's actual consequence that, that I hope to find consensus on this issue. And that would make a real meaningful difference in our lives. And then number two, you say, I, I, I believe that having the conversation with this person or these people will likely lead to constructive conversation that sharpens faith. Those two things are true. Number three, consider the space. Just think about the context, literally the location, the place, or just the context. You have the conversation. So Paul, he was in Athens addressing the Areopagus in Acts 17, and he, this was a, a quick description of that. So all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Just like the whatever the cutting edge uh, humanistic philosophy was. Paul goes into this situation. He briefly spoke truth into this space that was dominated by empty philosophizing and debate for debate's sake. And then he left, okay? 
He stepped in for a brief time, spoke truth to it, and then he left. He's like, I'm not called to be here for that long. This probably isn't going to go... probably isn't going to do a ton of work. I I probably won't make a ton of headway here in this space. It says at the end of that short narrative, it said there were a couple people who wanted to hear more, but more than anything, everybody was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. On to the next thing, whatever the next thought is, whatever the next philosophy or worldview is. So he left. I just want us to think, whatever the issue is, can we think about the space in which we're trying to have the conversation and think, is this space conducive to a constructive conversation? Let's just be honest. Let's, let's ask ourselves the question about how you may use your Facebook feed or your Insta feed or whatever uh, it is. Just, just ask the question. I mean, is this conducive? What is the win here by posting this thing that represents my view on this issue? I mean, like, what is the best case scenario from that? And, and I'm just, I'm not saying that that's not the place to do it. I'm just saying to ask the question. You know, have, have you seen um, constructive sharpening of views and of faith happen in that space? And if you have, blessings to you. Keep going. Keep doing that. But if you haven't, rethink the way that you use it. If, if, you know, Uncle Joe still has not changed his mind and come to be enlightened like you are and believe the thing that you are no matter how many memes you post about it and he's still not changing his mind and the comment thread argument just gets longer and longer. I mean, like, is this, is this space conducive for a constructive conversation? Adding it all up, ask yourself, if I discuss this issue with these people in this space, Will we likely be sharpened in our faith in Christ or not? Will we be encouraged or frustrated? Will we be heard and understood or simply reacted against? The question to ask in all of this is just a simple question I try to think through. What is the win? What is the win for this issue, this conversation, these people, this space, I mean, what is, what, what am I hoping will happen? What, what is the win? Is it that they change their mind about what they believe and they come to believe what I believe about this thing? If that's the win and if, and if that's worth fighting for and you feel like there's a wise, clear, honoring, helpful, humble, listening way to get there, by all means, go for it, press forward. I just worry that so often what we're doing and how we're doing it in trying to, to express our opinions or try to find consensus, it's just, it just doesn't work or it's just not working. Ask yourself, what's the win? Is there an argument worth having? Do I need to have it with these people? And is this the space to have it? There was a German theologian in the 17th century named Rupertus Meldinius, and he said it so well. You may have heard this quote. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. You could say, in all things, love. And it really is all about love. Francis Chan wrote a book recently on unity, and I uh, love this line he wrote from that. He said, our divisions usually aren't caused by a difference of theology but a lack of relationship. And fill in the blank there. Maybe it's not theology. Maybe it's whatever current issue there might be. Our, our differences, our divisions usually aren't caused by difference in um, political view. They're usually not caused by um, difference in um, social justice idea or um, 
or health issue or vaccine or mask or policy or school or what like it's it's usually actually not caused by difference in that but by a lack of relationship our problem is not a difference of opinion or interpretation it's the shallowness of our love listen to what he says in the church we divide easily because we love shallowly in the church we divide easily because we love shallowly. I don't know if you've ever seen people who think different things about um, secondary theological issues or contemporary cultural issues, um, but their love is so deep um, that there's a point at which those issues don't matter as much to them. Maybe, maybe it's in your family. Maybe, you know, maybe your grandson clearly thinks something different about the way you think, or your uncle clearly thinks something different about the way you think, or your parents even, or your sibling, or your friends, or your sister, whatever, clearly like differing views on this thing. But the love that they share is so deep, and it's so rooted in Christ that at some point, like there's a, there's a line to which, let's argue, let's debate, let's try to find consensus on this issue. But if we never do, ultimately it's going to be okay because our love is so grounding and so rooting together. Ultimately it's okay. I, I say all this because I want you to feel encouraged to fight well over things that matter. I, I want us to feel encouraged to fight well, right? To have fewer and better fights, whether it's theology whether it's faith, but just anything in life, whatever it is, household chores, whatever bickering you normally do with the people around you, I want us to be encouraged to fight well. But I really hope that we constantly embrace this tension between knowing when a disagreement demands a debate and knowing when it doesn't. Knowing when it's likely to lead to foolish controversy and when it's likely to lead to sharper faith. I want us to have fewer and better fights. Above everything, defending our unity. I just think that is so much the heart of God. I believe God is so intent on his people, unified around a a clear and a simple gospel, the good news of God's grace. Now, this is what, if we disagree on this, we're fundamentally at odds. But let's be unified on this, that the good news of God's grace through Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that anyone and everyone can come, they can admit that they're sinful, They can believe that Jesus died and he rose again, and they can choose to follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit who is now alive in them. And that's really it, okay? That's really it. Let's let's be unified on that above and over everything. Is that a gross oversimplification? Not of the gospel. Yeah, there, there is a lot more to Christianity than that. There is. And it's worth debating and it's worth disputing. Let's do that. That's fine. But when that clear, simple gospel is complicated or convoluted by secondary issues, even important ones, I don't believe God is pleased in our debate. I don't. What breaks his heart more than anything is the potential that someone could see a, a divided church And someone who may have come to Christ is deterred from faith in Christ because his people created an obstacle that didn't need to be there because they were inclined to be contentious, like Paul warns against. Because they were given to foolish controversies and genealogies and quarrels and useless fighting, like Paul warns against. 
In other words, we don't need to add offense to the gospel, church. It is offensive enough on its own. I do not believe he's pleased when because of our debate, because of our our desire, our loving to divide, when that causes obstacle from people coming to Christ. So the warning and the hope for us, just like the church in Crete and just like all believers that Jesus prayed for in John 17, is that that obstacle would never be our foolish controversies or our divisiveness, our dissensions, or our quarrels. See, it's not just nice behavior. Um, it's not what I'm, I'm pushing. I'm not just pushing for nice behavior so we can all enjoy having our nice behavior together. It's for the sake of the world. It's always for the sake of the world and the glory of God, for our witness to the lost, for the advance of the gospel. That is the greatest win every time, in every issue, in every conversation. The advance of the gospel, salvation of souls, that's the win. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray today that um, something from your word and and this passage specifically uh, might land on our hearts and convict us in ways that we may have contributed to foolish division, in ways that we may have contributed to um, even unnecessary obstacles uh, for people coming to Christ. Uh, Father, convict us and challenge us to be people who care so deeply about unity in the church. Um, Lord, that that we're willing to be uh, wrong about things that are not the most important things. Uh, Maybe we're willing to um, uh, hold certain views more humbly. Um, We're willing to listen more and speak less. Lord, would we be people who are constantly um, thinking with wisdom on how to handle issues, on who to uh, talk with, who to share with, and Lord, on the spaces that we try to have important conversations. Lord, would you just continually grow us into people of love? Would we be a church who, who loves so deeply that we are so unified by the gospel that... Um, that the ideas that threaten to divide us don't stand a chance because we are so firmly united in Christ together. Lord, increase our love. Make us more loving people. Make us a more loving church um, whose love shows the world around us uh, that God is loving and that he is here and he's present. So Lord, we love you. We just pray that you would be honored. Um, You would be seen in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we avoid foolish controversies, um, but the way that we think well and live well um, and love each other well. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.